0: Talk RL talk RL podcast is all reinforcement learning all the time featuring brilliant guests both research and applied join the conversation on Twitter at talkRL podcast I'm your host Robin Chohan I'm very excited to welcome our guest today we have Pierre Luca Doro a PhD student at Mila and visiting researcher at Meta and we have Martin Klisseroff, a PhD student at Mila and McGill, and a research scientist intern at Meta.
1: Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: It's it's absolutely my pleasure. So we're here to talk about Motif, uh, your recent work. Uh, the title of the paper is "Motif: Intrinsic Motivation from Artificial Intelligence Feedback." I was very excited to see this work on Twitter. I understand you're going to be presenting it at, at NeurIPS. So let's talk about some of the details of this work. Um, so Martin, can you give us a brief overview of this work? What is, what is Motif?
2: I guess the starting point of Motif is that we don't want to start from scratch in reinforcement learning, because that's something that is very difficult to do. Uh, and we have these language models out there that know a lot of stuff about a lot of domains that we care about. So they have this kind of prior knowledge that we could leverage. But it's not trivial to use that directly in a reinforcement learning kind of situation. So I guess the idea with Modif is, how do we distill that knowledge for decision-making without having the language models to actually directly interact in the environment, and instead use reinforcement learning to discover uh, a lot of stuff through that prior knowledge?
0: So I understand you used an intrinsic reward here, and you had a separate reward model. can you tell us about where how that reward worked? What was the intrinsic uh, reward, and how was that trained?
2: Right. The idea is to distill this knowledge um, for a reinforcement learning agent. And the thing that I haven't said is that the the big question is how do you how do we give this knowledge to the? And one of the most natural ways to do that is actually to put it in the reward, in a kind of intrinsic reward. So what do we mean by intrinsic reward? Is essentially It is a reward that is proper to the agent. It kind of drives its own exploration uh, and possibly credit assignment. Um, So this is a reward that you add to another reward, which is the extrinsic reward. And this reward is essentially the reward that you get from the environment. Um, So if we take an example um, of uh, of an agent that uh, I don't know has to reach a certain goal, and that's that's the extrinsic reward. You have to get there. Let's say you only have plus one, and everywhere is zero. Well, the intrinsic reward is going to help you do a lot of other stuff because it's going to give you, um, it's going to let you understand about how the environment works. It's going to let you reach that goal, and it's going to let you explore a bit better.
0: I am used to hearing about intrinsic reward often associated with exploration, curiosity, and things like that. But I understand that this intrinsic reward is a little bit different, uh, and I'll, it relates closely to the specific environment that you are working on here. So can you talk a little bit more about that, about the environment, and how the intrinsic re- reward relates to it?
2: Usually when we think about intrinsic reward, we we think about curiosity, like you mentioned, and this is based on the uh, for example, the prediction error, or count-based methods, or these kind of things, some kind of statistic about what the agent experiences in the environment. So in this case, what's different is that this intrinsic reward comes from the prior knowledge that the language model has about a certain task. So in the in the case of NetHack, um, the NetHack is essentially the game where we instantiate this method. Um, so NetHack, there's a lot of information about NetHack on the environment, and since language models are uh, trained on the internet, and that information is available in the internet, essentially the language model knows some things about the NetHack game. Um, So now the question is, uh, how can we use it as an intrinsic reward? How do we get from this abstract high-level knowledge into a step-by-step reward. And essentially, the, the method is, is it's pretty straightforward. It, it bases itself on RLHF, but in this case, since there's no uh, human feedback, it is AI feedback, so RLAIF. Um, and essentially, it goes like this. So you have this uh, language model that has prior knowledge about what uh, what is good or what is bad in a game of NetHack. What are good situations or what are bad situations? You essentially present the language model with two situations in the game. And these situations, uh, in this case, are uh, described through captions. So when you play NetHack, you, you go through a lot of uh, situations. And some of them, there's some messages that appear on top of the screen. Uh, let's say you have killed a certain monster, or you have found a hidden door, or things like that. So through these captions, we essentially get um, uh, information about what uh, might be happening in the game. So you get two of these captions. You give it to the language model. You you use some kind of uh, chain of thought prompting. You let it reason about. Uh, what uh, each of these messages or captions represent in, in terms of what is the underlying situation. And at, at the end of all that, you ask it for a preference. You ask it to say whether it prefers the first situation, the first caption that it sees, or does it prefer the second situation.
0: Sounds very similar to uh, RLHF, uh, yeah. of course, with just the LL, LLM in place of the human giving preferences.
2: Yeah, it's, it's very similar. It is very similar. Uh, so essentially, you ask for preferences on pairs of observations. And so, yeah, there's there's a lot of work on, on that in the literature, uh, learning from preferences. And most of the work is about RLHF. There's been some recent work about RLEIF, mostly in the space of language models. But I guess what is important here is that this the the same idea the same kind of flavor of doing of doing research can be applied to uh, a very different setting which is reinforcement learning where you don't you cannot actually you know get the whole a whole episode a little bit uh, so why I'm talking about episode is because uh, usually, when you do RLAIF with language models, you ask for uh, a preference over complete generations. Uh, f- uh, Two complete generations. In this case, you only have events, so it's a very, a very short description. There's a lot of missing information.
0: Can you give an example of what type of captions were he- were? we're dealing with here. What is the reward model seeing in terms of caption? Like what are a couple examples of captions?
2: Maybe the first thing about captions in the hack is that they don't appear very often. Most of the time it is empty messages. Uh, we don't filter for these, we still give them. But in the other cases where there are some messages, you have like a wide variety of messages that appear. So sometimes it's about uh, you have killed a certain monster or you have found a certain item. In other cases, it's messages that are completely useless, like "this is a wall" just because you're facing a wall. Um, and in some other cases, uh, it's uh, it's messages that appear because you're interacting with characters in the game, for example, shopkeepers or or things like that. So there's there's a wide variety of uh, messages that you can get.
0: So I understand from uh, so I I have not played a NetHack myself. I gotta admit. You know, when I got to university, when I saw NetHack, I said to myself, "Robin, I better never play that game because I'll get so addicted." I've been addicted to many adventure games, and I and I could see how deep this was. So I don't know the details of NetHack, but I can see enough to see that it's 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 quite deep. There's a lot going on. Uh, it's, it's there's a lot of complexity. It's it's not an easy game. It's not it's very different than Atari in that sense. But it's also text based, uh, which I and and it seemed like for, uh, there was a section in your paper where you mentioned. The LLM knows a lot about NetHack. Like you could ask, um, you could ask the LLM about NetHack, and it knows what is NetHack, what is, uh, and a lot of the details about it. Uh, was that the secret sauce that allowed the model to produce a meaningful reward function? Because it, because it really kind of already knew the game.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so first, NetHack is definitely an extremely difficult game. Uh, it is uh, an open-ended game. Uh, it is procedurally generated. Um, I tried. We, we tried to play the game ourselves, and uh, honestly, we're not much better than the motive agent. Yeah,
1: even though, even though I have to say that Martin is better than me at playing uh, hack. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> I guess I spent a bit better. more time for that. Uh, yeah, got better recently. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. I, I'm sure we could uh, we could reach uh, pretty good levels if we tried uh, real hard. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, so so NetHack is actually great for reinforcement learning because it has all these things that we care about, exploration, credit assignment. Uh, it is always different. It is stochastic. Um, it is continual learning. It, it is a great uh, benchmark, and it runs extremely fast. So <laughs> that's for NetHack. Um, to go back to the, the question of... Uh, uh, how much does the method rely on the language model knowing about hack? Well, actually, the, the language model that we use, lamat 2 definitely knows about NetHack. It is definitely part of the training set. But I wouldn't put the the, the knowledge of uh, the language model uh, on the level of expert. It is very far from that, in my opinion. Uh, perhaps pierre uh, also has... Tried prompting it many times. Uh, I'm sure you could give some insights.
1: Yeah, yeah I, totally, I totally agree with that. So, um, yeah, as you as you said in the paper, we have put some uh, um, let's say answer from the language model, and uh, the language model knows about like knows what the game is and knows. Uh, what is the kind of object you can find in the game? What is the goal of the game? So this is high-level information, for sure the model knows about it. But then at the level of, uh, you know, NetHack is an incredibly complex game, so sometimes experts, um, expert players, really have to uh, think about the long-term strategy in ways that are completely counterintuitive and uh, just NetHack specific. And the model sometimes doesn't know that kind of, um, doesn't have that kind of knowledge. Um, but at the same time, it has a, an unreasonable amount of human common sense. So, um, many of the things that happen on, in NetHack, of course, deal with everyday objects like opening doors or, uh, killing, I mean, encountering some, uh, monster, you know, it's like monsters are generally bad, even if you don't know anything about net hack. So we harvest a little bit of the knowledge about net hack, this net hack specific, but then a lot of the, just the common sense that the model has about language and the physical world and all of this. And uh, we believe this is one of the, uh, let's say, um, yeah, well, this is the reason why the method works well. It's not really for the like, net hack specific knowledge that the model has. It's a little bit about that, but it's mostly for this common sense.
0: Okay, and just to be clear, it's not that you guys just hooked up the Llama LLM straight to net hack and are making progress that way. You did a lot more. Uh, uh, there's a lot more mechanism here in terms of separately training the reward model and separately training the. RL agent, but would that simple setup work? Like, if you just plug Llama into NetHack and try to make it play, do you think you'd get anywhere, or would that be just hopeless?
1: Yeah, we tried, and uh, it doesn't seem to work as uh, easily. And so it, uh, we don't think it's impossible to get something out of there, because, as you said, like NetHack is is a text game uh, in the end. So even if the text is used to uh, represent uh, um, like physical, like a visual. Uh, space but it's a text game so we tried and it doesn't seem to be to be easy because NetHack is um, you know it's partially observable and it's like sometimes you see things that are like uh, you need an incredibly long context first but also it's not easy to interpret for the language model that maybe knows about NetHack maybe has seen something about NetHack but it's different like to interpret each individual symbol so we, uh, we went, uh, with this route with, uh, with motif, uh, of like building a bridge between the uh, low level word that is might be arbitrarily complex and the high level knowledge of the language model, uh, by not, uh, like giving all the details to the language model, but instead like creating this bridge through, uh, the reward function. So, so that you just need the event captions, but you don't like you don't need the language model to fully understand the observations.
0: I'm i interested in the fact that you're just looking at the captions, and you mentioned that a lot of times in NetHack you don't get a caption, so you're just seeing a text rendered map. Is that right? Or text rendered screen? Yep, correct. Your your reward yeah. model is being trained on just the captions. Is that right? Not the screen, not the uh, map, and the rest of the observation.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's just messages, just the captions that appear on top.
0: And then does the agent itself get the full observation?
2: Yep, the agent does get the whole observation because that's necessary to make like these fine-grained actions step by step.
0: How does exploration work in this setting?
2: So in NetHack, you, you do have sometimes some messages that appear uh, because you've done exploratory action. So... Uh, the maze is generally uh, procedurally generated, and um, at some points you hit a dead end, and then you have to use the search action many times in a row to reveal the next uh, tile, and then you can proceed and, and you know continue exploring. So when you do these kind of things, there are some messages that appear that say, "Oh, you have found a hidden passage," or "You have found a hidden door," and these kind of things are actually one of some of the things that are the, the most highly rewarded by motive because it understands that you know you have done some something that is very useful for progress in the future
0: right and I think you mentioned in the paper that sometimes the reward function acts more like a value function like it's actually telling you there's value in the future as opposed to this uh this particular event is uh, has high reward so that's kind of that's kind of quite interesting um you know reward function that's Kind of in between a reward and value function. Is that how you think about it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think this is probably one of the quite interesting things that we found in in working with Motif is that usually we think about rewards as uh, reward functions as being something very different from a value function, but uh, when you ask the language model to give you preferences uh, to extract a reward function. The way that it reasons about its preferences is almost always with respect to the future. So there's there's this debate on, on Twitter about uh, whether language models have a, a world model or not. I think this what we found is a pretty compelling evidence that they do. Uh, it is definitely an abstract world model. It's not like a step-by-step. Uh, it's not in a step-by-step sense of a world model. It's more like you have uh, shown me this message and that other message. I prefer the first message because if you find a hidden door, then there's possibly other rooms that you're going to find. So it assumes that if you find a hidden door, you're actually going to you know open the door and you're going to continue exploring. So it's thinks about the future and it also conditions on some kind of reasonable policy. And this is probably one of the, I think one of the, the key reasons uh, for, uh, for why the reward for motive is especially useful. It's closer to a value function. Um, and, and maybe just to put it into a theoretical, more theoretical kind of ground, um, like if you look at the literature on potential base reward uh, shaping, you see in that case that the, you know, the optimal uh, potential function is the optimal value function. Um, so in a sense, the, the best reward that you can hope for is a reward that guides you for the future. So it's the value function, uh, which motive tends to give.
1: If you remember, we have in the paper this result that is about uh, the agents trained with intrinsic reward only, the one coming from the language model, are better than the ones that are trained with the game score at uh, like collecting the game score itself. And this is quite a surprising result when you when you see it. But but at the same time, if you think about what Martin just said about like uh, putting the value from the future to the present by uh, essentially having a reward that behaves like a value function, then your agent doesn't have to explore as much and doesn't have to do as much credit assignment as it would no- normally. So, um, in other words, the resulting reward function is way, way easier to optimize compared to the reward function that comes from the environment. So, the, the language model can do three things, essentially. Like, the, the first thing is to replicate a little bit the score, uh, reward function that comes from the environment because the language model knows what will give you score in the game. Given its knowledge of net and common sense, uh, the second thing is like it behaves like a value function, so it helps the agent the agent in doing credit assignment. And the third thing is it's um, it's gonna guide the agent to do exploration because the language model, as we mentioned, prefers actions which are explorative. So, for instance, it will tell you the it will prefer a message that says uh, you open a door. Uh, just because when you open a door, there is a high uh, probability for an agent that follows a reasonable policy to uh, follow uh, to find new information. Uh, so it, it has these three levels, and the combination of three levels uh, leads to that kind of result.
0: Okay, very cool. So let's—it's kind of like the uh, the LLM is almost providing some pre-training by bootstrapping with this common sense. Uh, is that is that a way to look at it?
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is a little bit. It's like it's pre-training that doesn't come in the form of like training of uh, the parametric policy or the uh, value function itself. So the, all the information is encoded into some neural network, there is the uh, reward function. But then uh, this like we we use some form of uh, PPO, and then like these policy optimization algorithms, if you give them a very good reward function. They are very nice. They really find the solutions that lead to good behavior, uh, given that very nice uh, and easy to optimize reward function.
2: Yeah, perhaps uh, another thing with respect to this is that um, the the kind of pre-training that we can see is can also be interpreted as uh, how do you align the agent. So the kind of alignment that you see is very Kind of human oriented, uh, the behavior that the resulting agent gets from this reward is a behavior that you would imagine uh, a human exhibiting when they play the game. So maybe just to give a slight, slightly more detail about that, uh, usually the 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 baseline, the RL baseline that maximizes the score, is very greedy with respect to going down the dungeon, and that in a hack is essentially super dangerous uh, as soon as you go down a few levels things start to be very complicated and you die very easily if you haven't increased your experience level if you haven't uh, if you have if you don't have a better armor class and those kind of things if you haven't improved your skills you shouldn't know the the reward from the environment tells you you get rewards by going down so what happens with uh, an agent that the, the motif agent that learns from language model feedback, it is much more conservative. It So NetHack is a survival game. It acts much more like it's trying to survive. So it doesn't just go down blindly. It, uh, it tries to stay in levels, try to fight monsters much more. Uh, and because of that, it survives for much longer periods of time. Um,
0: and, and why is that? Why why does the other agent want to go down to the difficult levels right away, and this agent is, is happy to slowly work through the levels?
2: That's a great question. I, I intuitively I feel that it's a, it's a matter of uh, the language model gives a more dense reward, a reward that, and to find the objects, uh, to do a lot uh, more things in so each it's of like the more levels. Appealing.
0: For it to be on the first level, because it because it knows there's more reward up there, or it knows that the value function is has lots lots of Easter eggs for it up there.
2: Exactly, exactly. This summit yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, in the case of the, the the RL baseline, it's the the limit the the, the reward function uh, the reward function is much more limited uh, in terms of what it rewards, and one of the biggest reward is to go down a level. So, you know, naturally you can expect. Um, the agent to just want to go down levels once it sees a staircase. Can you,
0: can you talk about some of the, uh, unexpected things, other, other unexpected things that you found, uh, during this work, there was an interesting anecdote about hallucinations and, and not in the usual sense of LLMs hallucinating, but something else.
1: One of the tasks uh, that we use in our paper is, uh, a task called the Oracle task. And in this task, the, agent has to find this character that is called the oracle, and it's in one of the levels that come a little bit deeper into the dungeon, so uh, usually in levels that uh, the agents trained with uh, reinforcement learning using the score as a reward function cannot even reach. and So we discovered that our agent trained with the combination of intrinsic and extrinsic reward can find that. and. In practice, uh, we wanted to understand and to dive deeper into the behavior of the agent because we we were surprised that it had a pretty high success rate of thirty percent. So we wanted to know like, how is that possible? How can it reach so easily this very very difficult um uh, like uh, oracle uh, character to reach? And so we looked at it and we found out that wasn't going deep into the dungeon at all. And what it was doing was uh, basically, uh, it was exploiting some of the features of uh, NetHack, which is the fact that the agent can hallucinate when it eats a particular like, uh, substance that comes from a monster. And uh, it was exploiting this feature for uh, hacking the reward. Uh, so the, we used the NetHack learning environment and. Uh, who coded the environment simply thought, okay uh, you're going like the agent completes the task when the character that is the oracle is near uh, to the uh, symbol that denotes the, the the agent so the task is completed when this situation is uh, is encountered but they didn't think that when you are in the state of hallucination in the game, what happens is that you start seeing all the other like monsters and objects as random uh, objects and monsters so the policy that the uh, our agent learned is basically like to get on drugs or to hallucinate as fast as possible and to wait for something to become the Oracle so to become the goal uh, and so instead of going deep into the dungeon which is a pretty difficult uh task to achieve like it found this solution that leads to a pretty high success rate and we also like Fixed the task and so that the agent could solve also the, the original Oracle, like the originally intended Oracle task. But we were very surprised by finding this case of, uh, uh, let's say, misalignment. Uh, and we actually defined, like, we, we tried to think about the general phenomenon that is behind this, uh, this misalignment and we call that misalignment by composition. Because, like we, uh, Martin has discussed that the intrinsic reward actually generates behaviors that are pre-aligned to how a human would play the game. And of course, if you train the agent with just an in- extrinsic reward on this Oracle task, uh, it doesn't get any useful behavior that you could say it's still aligned. Like it's, it's not good, but nothing unsurprising. But then you combine the true reward functions. And the uh, optimization process, the RL algorithm finds a behavior that is misaligned. So, by just composing two reward functions that, when optimized by themselves, lead to aligned behavior, you got a misaligned behavior. And we believe that this kind of uh, uh, misalignment or like this kind of uh, dynamics could be present also in other contexts, like when you train chat agents uh, um, with RLHF uh, with multiple criteria, for instance.
0: So it looks like a kind of a classic instance of uh, reward hacking, or how RL just kind of cuts to the chase, or finds a bug, yep. or some shortcut. Uh, you know, skipping the hard work of the real world and just getting enlightened from some magic mushrooms. Just <laughs> go straight to the goal. <laughs> That's pretty funny, actually. Yeah, um, yeah. So, with a big, big project like this, how do you guys split the split the work between the two of you? I think you were the two first authors. Is that right? And then you had
1: other co-authors. So we are. Really believers of uh, collaborative research. So, in the current research environment, it's very, very important to do research in a way that uh, let people like easily share ideas and uh, work really together to really understand things deeply and build uh, things that are a little bit more creative. And so, what uh, what we did in in this particular case, like Martin joined as an intern. It was in June, and I have to say it, it was a moment of confusion for reinforcement learning researchers because you know uh, chat GPT and powerful language models are out there, and it was like it wasn't clear what uh, the relationship between reinforcement learning research or like researchers in decision making should be with these uh, with these kind of systems. Um, and so what we did with Martin initially was simply like to brainstorm. All the possible ways you could use a language model for decision making. So there were a lot of papers at, at that time about like, you know, just you have a text game, you can use the language model as a policy or like you can, uh, build a curriculum with a language model uh, and all of these things. So we read all of these papers and we brainstormed together for, for a few days and, um, and yeah, and, and basically the, the idea for Motif came came out from these brainstorming sessions are as, in a way, the most natural way to connect the high level knowledge from the language model and the low level skills that you wanna learn um, uh, using reinforcement learning. Uh, and so we, yeah, it was, so it started from just brainstorming and, uh, and thinking about um, things together um, and then in practice, yeah, in the initial phase of the project, I, I don't know if you noticed, but the, the algorithm is pretty pretty modular. So we have this phase in which we use the language model to annotate the data set, then we have this phase in which with the annotated data set, you can uh, train the reward model, and then we just do online uh, reinforcement learning training with the resulting reward model. And uh, this are a pretty nice property from the engineering, standpoint because then uh, we had the possibility in some specific moments early in the project to split the evaluation of these parts. So I was working a little bit more on the language model side at the beginning and uh, Martin was working a little bit more on the reward uh, training side. Uh, and we, uh, so we, we were able to split this work. Uh, but eventually, yeah, the design of the experiments that went in the paper uh, and the, the final experiments, like we, we simply like, designed them all together and we tried to, to, to take all the decisions together and the writing was done together.
0: Speaking of teamwork, uh, for the listeners, I just want to note that uh, one of the co-authors of this motif paper, Amy Zhang, we interviewed in episode 29. We've also been lucky to feature uh, a couple of your PhD advisors from both of you, including Professor Belmare in episode 22 and Professor Machado. In episode twenty, listeners might want to check out those episodes as well. Yeah,
2: we, were, we were starting this uh, project that seemed a little bit crazy at the beginning, mm-hmm. and and it, it, and it was kind of crazy because for us because it, it's it's so different from what we did, and I just remember you know after the first few couple of weeks and we're trying stuff and we just, we spent like a month coding the stuff be- before we can even run anything. And like some of these evenings, which we're just you know, going out of the office and like, are we crazy? Like, are we, do you feel uncomfortable? This seems like a big risk.
0: So what you're saying is you weren't sure this would work. What did you think would not work? Like you didn't know if the uh, reward function would, would, would be sufficient to make a good engine?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think we had the vision was was there. Uh, we we definitely believed that this would be probably the most natural way to distill abstract knowledge for decision making agents. But the specifics of it is is definitely another set of uh, difficulties. Uh, and the first few uh, things that we tried actually didn't work uh, for details that, that maybe is, is too you know too deep at the moment, but uh, uh, there's, there's some choices that we had to, to make, some things we had to learn that you not necessarily will learn by reading RLHF papers or RLAIF because the setting is, is very different, very related. The setting is different and presents a lot of uh, challenges.
0: So you mentioned the gap between the world of LLMs uh, and the world of RL agents, especially in non-text settings, and the idea that it's not very clear how to combine these two two things. And I guess here, because Net NetHack is text-based, um, it was more easy to make direct progress, not like. I guess because NetHack is, is text-based, that made it a bit easier to incorporate the LLM. And the LLM didn't know something about NetHack. But uh, for other settings where where that might not be the case, where they're either not in text, or the LLM has no idea about the the, the environment, or, I mean, maybe uh, maybe the environment is somehow similar to NetHack, but not the same. Like, I, I, I realize NetHack... There's some sense of optimism, right? When you when you find a hidden door, you are not afraid that there's a mine behind it that will explode and you will die. That's just not how net hack works. Usually, when there's a hidden door, there's something nice behind it. So there's some kind of bias in there uh, that the the model I think uh, thinks is, is assuming that that uh, surprises are maybe more positive or something. There's some some of that yep. there uh, in in the that that's where the environment is. Um somehow in a lot is somehow similar to what the expectations of the language model are. But if those things aren't the case, um, can we talk about other ways that that you've seen people bridge that gap uh, between the world of RL and the world of LLMs? I, I can say that on the show we've had, you know the Secan authors, Carol Hausman and Faye Shaw, uh, on the podcast and at the time they were designing hand selected, Value functions for certain things, as their way of bridging the gap. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about other ways of bridging that gap that you've seen, or or what you think
1: is promising in in bridging that gap. On net hack, you can have very very bad surprises behind doors. <laughs> but it, but it's oh, just okay. like we are, we are still not we are still not at the level of agents that. Um, you know, play the game as a human expert, but a human expert would know that something incredibly bad can be behind a door, or something incredibly bad can happen if you kill a specific, like if you attack a specific type of monster. And yeah, this is a little bit of a drawback of the current uh, uh, LLM configuration and knowledge. Uh, but I think on this point about like domain knowledge, well, if w- what do you do if you have an LLM? Uh, that is pre-trained, and uh, you have a task uh, that th- that you want to perform, and maybe you have some data on that task. Well, you just fine-tune your language model, and so we believe that uh, if you want to apply motif to a, to another environment, or uh, even just to net hack, if you want to have a more accurate reward model, or whatever, you can just fine-tune uh, fine-tune the language model to the information of interest. So this is a way to bridge this gap in terms in terms of knowledge, and we we think this is basically the most natural way uh, you could ha- you could have to to bridge it. Uh, and also, if I yeah, if if I can make a comment on the uh, yeah, let's say on the text-based nature of, of NetHack. It's true that it's text based also in the observation space, but as we discussed, uh, it's not a feature we use in Motif. And actually, if you try to give it to language model, it's not that good at interpreting that kind of input. So what we use is, is really an event caption. And we believe that this kind of event caption is actually not so uncommon to obtain in many environments. Like it's a high level happening. So. Uh, imagine, like, in the real world, it would be something like you open a door or, like, you're, you're going down the stairs. So, uh, there are very, very good captioning models right now that could produce such event captions without any, any problems. And, uh, also, uh, if you take the current motif architecture, let's say, and you, uh, use a, uh, Vision, uh, vision language model, so a model that can give you a preference on uh, images, for instance. You could apply exactly the same algorithm with vision, uh, visual-based observations. Mm, so I see images. what you mean. Cool. Okay. So, so, so we 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 are not the ones like creating the vision language models right now, but uh, you know there is uh, thousands of people probably uh, training such models. So. Uh, if you, if you, uh, we believe by next year there's going to be a model that is good enough to try something like this in a in a different environment that is just based on images.
0: But then uh, that on that one point about fine-tuning a language model, uh, I'm trying to imagine how that works because if the, the fine-tuning would have to include some notion of what is better or worse, right? Like how how would how would fine-tuning on a bunch of text it like help it? help it change its value function or its reward model? I think that's that's
1: not clear to me. Yeah, so the, that's a good question. Like, the fine-tuning I was talking about is a fine-tuning just of the language model. So the thing you want to uh, do is just to give the uh, knowledge about the task to the language model. But you don't want to necessarily give, like, the model will learn what is good and what's bad. Uh, with its, like, you know, low level reasoning abilities or like not incredible, but reasonable reasoning abilities. It will learn what is, uh, what's good and what's bad by just having the knowledge about the task. It's not like you have to explain to the model, okay, uh, this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. Uh, the model will learn the high level knowledge about, uh, the new task. And then the model will be able to say, uh, okay, given this, my high level knowledge of what's the goal, In this task and what's the uh, like the typical like happenings in this task then i can tell you yeah uh like if you're playing soccer it's kind of it's kind of good if you are uh scoring a goal like if you're scoring if you're uh like it doesn't need to see like cases of score not score it will learn it from just reading about about the game or about the the new environment which is what you could say is what humans do uh, many times, like imagine you, you're, you're about to play a game that you don't know anything about or like you're about to do a sport you don't know anything about, probably the first thing you're going to do is to at least read the rules of the game or the, the, the rules of the sport, like of the, yeah, uh, of whatever sport you're doing and, and then figure out uh, ways to integrate that knowledge into behaviors.
2: I guess uh, one of the main motivation behind Modif is that this language model knows things at a high level, and we wouldn't want to use these large models to fine-tune them for step-by-step action, because by definition this is contrary to the way they're being trained, at least language model as we know. Uh, they're trained to predict next words and, and these things are, are quite high level, whereas when you when you actually do reinforcement learning, you have to act as, as a step-by-step uh, kind of setting. So, if we if we do fine-tuning of these large models, um, I guess we can see it like from uh, by taking the place of the language model as humans. Like, let's say you you have your prior knowledge about all the and um, how the world works more or less, and then you hear about a certain game, you're gonna try things. Uh, that uh, would perhaps make sense in the other games that you know about. You're gonna try them in this one. You're gonna try different variations, and that's the the hope here that you fine tune the, these large models, but you you don't necessarily fine tune them at, at a very low level. You 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 try to keep that as a as a high level kind of knowledge uh, on which you can build and. And once you have that high-level knowledge, then what we propose with Modif is, is to, you know, just let the reinforcement learning agent uh, take that reward function and run with it for billions of iterations, try to find all the cracks, try to find all the, the possible things that it can do. And and that's the 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 strength of reinforcement learning. Really, it, it it's able to find stuff that we couldn't otherwise.
0: So you guys definitely have some interesting ideas for follow up work. Uh, do you do you plan to do follow up work on this, or you plan to switch channels? Uh,
2: so we're currently working on, on follow up on this uh, around NetHack. Uh, we definitely wanna um, focus a bit more on performance at the moment. So the this motive paper. Uh, is you know there's there's like one page uh, about performance where we show that it, it does pretty particularly well uh, but we focus most of it on trying to understand you know the the alignment and and analyze the behavior of the agent uh, but we would like to do a follow-up on an hack to really seal the deal and 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 try to optimize uh most of the components uh, that we haven't in this first paper. Um, So hopefully in the next few months, we possibly, we're going to find something that works even better.
0: Awesome. Looking forward to it. There has been uh, some tension, uh, you know, as you mentioned, around the role of RL in this world where uh, I think artificial intelligence is increasingly being defined in terms of, of these new LLMs. Even if LMs themselves are trained with RL. Uh, and 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 Pierre Luca, you wrote an interesting blog post about this about this topic where I gather you're suggesting that that RL people kind of reframe themselves a bit or reframe the problem a bit. Uh, can you can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, the blog post was sort of extreme in, in a sense. Like the blog post was superficially it was just saying, okay, we shouldn't use the name reinforcement learning, because the name reinforcement learning will be associated to the old techniques that we used to use in reinforcement learning. So people would think about, oh, these people are just training policy gradient algorithms on Atari games. And so it was a little bit thought provocative, but the the underlying truth that I was trying to convey is that uh, a researcher in reinforcement learning is actually not just a researcher in reinforcement learning, but is a scientist that tries to understand the science of sequential decision-making. So you're trying to understand um, what a decision-making agent should do, like to learn how to interact with with an environment to achieve some kind of goal. And so the fact that you use, that now we use large language models to uh, bootstrap the knowledge of an agent or like to think about things, it's not like, it, it doesn't mean that all we learned with reinforcement learning research is uh, is lost. Like we've still learned a lot of things about credit assignment, about exploration. And when I wrote that post, it was at the, the beginning of the summer. And uh, actually it was part of the inspiration of why like we started working on Motif because we wanted to show that actually like the two words of uh, uh, let's say uh, language models and uh, reinforcement learning as like traditionally taught they they are connected. And we we found this connection of the reward function. And we we, we think it's one of the most natural ones. And I also want to add something, which is, uh, so uh, there's a lot of, again, there is a lot of uh, work. And a lot of people are thinking about these AI agents. So when talking about AI agents means you have a large language model, and this large language model interacts with some of uh, with an environment, which is usually in a computer. And so the, a lot of the work that is being done right now, it's a little bit more, uh, rough or like explorative in terms of, uh, yeah, I want to show that maybe GPT-4 can do this or GPT-4 can do that. Or, uh, if I join these pieces together, something like this happens. But what, what I see as a scientist, is that we need a science of AI agents right now? So we need to not to lose all the progress that we made in the science of decision making in the in the uh, last few years, and to use that progress, that rigor, and that understanding of decision making to analyze these systems. So we need to, in other words, we need to build a, a modern science of AI agents that incorporates language models into the mix.
0: Yeah, interesting take. I. I, th- I think for a while there, when people were hearing intelligent agents or or just uh, AI agents, they started thinking about Langchain and baby AGI and these things, which to me right. were not had nothing to do with that. And so I was so confused when I would talk to people in the mainstream. They say, oh, have you heard about agents? And I was like, what do you mean? And they would point at baby <laughs> AGI that's just spewing out all this text. And I was like, oh, wow. I guess the the words are kind of preceding the understanding. Of what of what's happening here, so I was excited to read your blog post, and I, I encourage people to read it. And we will link to it in the episode notes. There's one other paper we want to touch on: uh, the policy optimization in a noisy neighborhood on return landscapes in continuous control. Pierre Luca, can you give us a high-level overview of this paper? Um, what what is happening in in this paper?
1: Yeah, first of all, I want to thank Nate Ron because he. He, he, he collected this project with me, but also he worked on, uh, a lot of those incredible visuals that you've seen, uh, in the Twitter thread. Uh, so thanks, Nate. Um, and so the, this paper is again, you, you can think it's about this science of uh, AI agents. So it's about like the empirical, uh, science of deep reinforcement learning. So apart from, you know, building new algorithms that have good performance, uh, It's good for science to do also something else, which is to build understanding of of the algorithms we have and of the behaviors that they generate. So in order to build this understanding, the approach that we take in this paper is the one of looking at the return landscape. So it's the mapping between a behavior or a policy uh, and the performance of this policy in a particular environment. so you can use a particular lens on this uh, on this landscape to understand uh, when you use a deep reinforcement learning algorithm like PPO, soft actor critic, or TD three, what is the kind of uh, part of this landscape that is visited, and also we take some kind of distribution of view on this uh, uh, landscape, and we are able like to characterize each policy, each behavior, uh, as a, with a distribution. And that, uh, if you use the metrics, uh, like the statistics of this distribution, uh, you can like describe the behavior. So you can build a map, uh, and we, we have this color plotting. We literally build a map of the behaviors that are visited by uh, deep reinforcement learning algorithms. So th- this is a type of finding that we have. And we also show that you can uh, move between neighborhoods. So some neighborhoods are very noisy. So sometimes like you move a little bit and you have a completely different uh, policy that is failing. Uh, but some other neighborhoods are uh, pretty smooth and we build uh, simple algorithms to move uh, from one to, uh, from one type of neighborhood to the other. And uh, we also study this return landscape with a global perspective in which we show that uh, basically like if you run your policy optimization algorithm, uh, you can interpolate between the neural networks uh, parameters that you obtain, just linearly interpolate, and the resulting return uh, never drops in, in expectation. So you can, uh, basically we show that a, a phenomenon like uh, linear mode connectivity also exists in uh, in reinforcement learning. So uh you can uh, simply connect the policies with linear paths and a large part of the optimization uh that is done by rl algorithms happens in this like uh passing uh that is very very smooth, uh, which is which is a bit surprising for us
0: now, earlier I, I misspoke i think i said loss landscapes and and really you're mapping the return landscapes can you just clarify that landscape when you say return landscape is that the value function
1: the loss landscape in uh, reinforcement learning is typically the value function because you're trying to uh, maximize uh, uh, the expected return as estimated by the, uh, approximated by the value function. Instead, the return landscape is the actual return that your policy gets in the environment. So it's not related to, like it's indirectly related to the optimization process, process, but it's not related, like it's not that, it's. Uh, just the, the reward that you, like the uh, cumulative reward that you get in the, uh, environment. Uh, and so the two are related and, and actually like one of the relationship between the two, uh, I could have a comment on the, again, on the mode connectivity, uh, result, which is, uh, when you, uh, so when you, uh, go from a policy to another and you used, uh, a deep reinforcement learning algorithm to do so, Well, you optimized a policy using even a non-stationary objective, which is the value function that you were learning uh, during the policy optimization process. So it's even more surprising that with a non-stationary loss uh, landscape, you get something that is very, very smooth in terms of optimization.
0: So what you're saying is return landscape. Do you mean you're evaluating the policy at every single point? That means you're actually running the policy to see what the total return is from that point? Yes. And so it's a very expensive landscape to compute. Is that right?
1: Yes, exactly. It, it, yeah. Yeah. It, it is theoretically very expensive in practice. We, we wrote code that is like super parallel. We used, I don't know if you ever heard of this simulator called Brax that runs on the GPU. So we, we use these, uh, uh, we have all of these code to do all the evaluations of the policies in parallel. And that allows us like to, uh, evaluate many policies, many, Um, yeah many policies in many moments in training uh, also uh, with many episodes Um, so that's the secret
0: and your theta is your policy parameters so you're saying that if it's bumpy it's saying that slight change in policy parameters is resulting in a big change in performance is that what a bumpy landscape means exactly all the magic in this in deep rl seems to be in these black boxes of what these neural networks are doing and it's so hard to know what's happening inside so if you have a new way of looking in them and figuring out how to produce stability from these otherwise very unstable black boxes that sounds like it could be very important so um yeah listeners will will be linking to this paper as well in the in the show notes so uh, does this does this paper bring us a little bit further towards understanding how to get stable stable agents in rl
1: i think we are still uh, far from having let's say a uh, very very a good solution for that, but we one thing we do is like we we build understanding about uh, about like what is the underlying phenomenon that might be uh, going on and might prevent uh, agents who have stable policies.
0: What is happening? What else is happening in RL aside from the great work that you both are doing? But what else is happening in in, in the world of RL lately that that you find quite interesting?
2: I think for me, one of the things that is the most interesting is the idea of diversity. Um, Going back to quality diversity algorithms, uh, I think these kind of ideas are extremely promising these days, um, given that we have language models that can have some kind of prior about what is a good uh, measure of diversity. Um, So... Like how do you learn diverse skills? How do you uh, select diverse goals? I think this is extremely promising. And I think through diversity, we can really reach, um, we can really reach surprising behavior.
1: In the last few years i have been excited by this direction that is called, uh, decision awareness or like decision-aware model learning. So the idea that model-based reinforcement learning, you learn some kind of uh, model that is, instead of simply being learned by maximum likelihood, is oriented to uh, the uh, ultimate objective in reinforcement learning which is like maximizing the reward. Um, so I had some work uh, a few years ago and uh, recently I've been working on some uh, policy gradient related uh, work in this space and uh, it's gonna be out in the next months probably, but it's uh, it's quite exciting. So. It's about like how you could use neural networks and their shape and the way they are conditioned to have an estimate for the policy gradient that can even be better than the one that comes from the real world. So even if you assume you have the real, like the real policy gradient, the, the resulting policy gradient that you have from a method can be even, even better. So I'm quite excited about this.
0: Pierre-Lucet and Martin Klisarov, I wanna thank you both for joining us today and sharing your insight with the Talk RLA audience.
2: Thank you both.
1: Thanks to you again for having us. Thank you so much for having us. It was
2: great to chat with you.
0: Yeah, we look forward to seeing your work at, at uh, Neurups in New Orleans.